Following the bombing attacks in Boston, the arrest of a suspect and suggested links with terrorist organizations, a supposedly thwarted terrorist attack in Canada, reports of the possible use by the Syrian government of chemical weapons, a North Korean nuclear standoff, and charges of vote rigging in the Venezuelan elections. How should the general public be responding? Are there questions the media should be asking as civil liberties are being eroded in the name of security? Is a regional or global war in the offing? We'll explore these questions with writer and veteran broadcaster Stephen Lendman. On today's program, Terrorists Are Us, a conversation with Stephen Lendman. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 25th, 2013. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major stories shaping the national and international political landscape. Investigators are saying the lone remaining suspect in the Boston Marathon bombings, Jokar Sarniev, was unarmed when he was shot at by Boston police while hiding in a boat in the driveway of a Watertown, Massachusetts resident last April 19th. The brothers are not believed to be involved in an international terrorist organization, although, as one law enforcement official notes, the inquiry into the bombings is still in its early stages. That comes from the Washington Post. U.S. Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel was caught off guard Wednesday by Israeli officials' announcement Tuesday that the Syrian government had used chemical weapons in its civil war. Hagel, who has been on a week-long Middle East tour, stated that his Israeli counterpart Moshe Yalon had not alerted him of this assessment when they met only a day before, on Monday. The Obama administration has stated that the use of chemical weapons by the Bashar al-Assad government would be a quote-unquote game-changer that would prompt a more direct U.S. role in the military conflict. Hegel, who made the comments during a tour stop in Cairo, Egypt, did not wish to publicly question the accuracy of the assessment, but merely meant to emphasize that in his words, the United States relies on its own intelligence and must. In addition to the Syrian civil war, Hegel and Yalon discussed the threat posed by Iran and its nuclear program. That comes to us from UPI and the Associated Press. The Parliament of Canada voted 183 to 93 on Wednesday in favor of a controversial bill which revives some of the provisions of the Canada's Anti-Terrorism Act, instituted shortly after the September 11th attacks. Bill S-7, or the Combating Terrorism Act, allows for the detention for up to 72 hours of people on the mere suspicion of being involved with terrorism. It also allows for so-called investigative hearings, which oblige people suspected of having knowledge of a terrorist attack to answer questions or else face incarceration for up to 12 months. 
The bill also suspends the right of individuals to leave the country for the purposes of combating terrorism-related activities. And that comes to us from the CBC. April has proven to be a month of major geopolitical shakeups. We've seen the most closely contested election in Venezuela in decades and charges of election fraud hanging over the incumbent government. We've seen significant saber-rattling by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and threats of preemptive nuclear strikes. And, of course, fears around the threat of terrorism, domestic and international, have been taken up an octane level in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombings and the arrest of two men suspected by Canadian authorities of plotting an attack on a passenger train. For the remainder of the hour, we will attempt to digest these complicated realities with Stephen Lendman. Stephen Lendman is a veteran broadcaster and host of the Progressive Radio News Hour on the Progressive Radio Network. He's the Chicago-based author of Banker Occupation, Waging Financial War on Humanity. And he's also a frequent contributor to the globalresearch.ca website. So good morning, Stephen Lendman. Michael, it's good to be back on with you. Okay, uh, well, uh, I think maybe we'll just start off with uh, what's proven to be like a very... uh, uh, the, the major headline grabber, of course, the, the Boston Marathon attacks. And uh, I know you've r- written uh, numerous articles on, on this one topic. So I, I'm wondering, uh, you know, first of all, um, we're all familiar with the official story. I'm wondering at one point, uh, did you start to you know, ask some serious questions about like what, what doesn't quite jibe with the, uh, the whole story of these... Uh, of this, uh, of the bombing and of the efforts by the the FBI to uh, investigate. I mean, what what is it there that that stood out for you? I would say the instant I heard about what happened, Michael, I, I, I it raised red flags for me. Instantly, I'll explain why. But let me just preface that by saying that I grew up in Boston. I was there through college. Then I left. Uh, I don't get back very often. I haven't been back in years. But I'm very, very familiar with the location where the bombings took place in Copley Square, a very important part of downtown Boston. And uh, so I, I could literally picture in my mind uh, the setting for, for where this took place. I mean, I literally have been to that spot many, many times, although certainly not in many years. The key for me is... Uh, I've written about so many Muslims. I've written about America's war on Islam. I've written literally about dozens of Muslims that have been targeted. They've been accused of things that they never committed. Uh, they were they were convicted. Many of them got long prison terms. I have. I mean, I, I've probably written about five or six dozen cases. I've done this for a good number of years. I've yet to find a single individual who I honestly believe did anything whatsoever. As far as I'm concerned, everybody I wrote about is innocent. They were entrapped. They, 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 were, they, they were entrapped into something. They never had any idea, any, any notion of, of getting involved in. And the FBI, all times, at all times, uh, with uh, with uh, complicit informants, 
provocateurs are the ones who got them into whatever they were accused of doing. But they never would have done anything. And always there was some kind of a plot that went up to the moment of truth. And then the FBI swooped in and said, aha, we caught another terrorist. We stopped another plot before it happened. Well, this time there was a plot and it did happen. Well, I suspect, Michael, that uh, the authorities, the FBI, the people who are in charge in Washington, wanted a mini mass casualty event, and they sure got one. Hmm. Now, you talk about the FBI uh, and uh, authorities uh, entrapping uh, these suspects. Uh, Could you maybe elaborate a little bit in terms of uh, these two brothers? Well, we're still waiting for more information to come out, but uh, I have an article that uh, I'm working on. Uh, By the time this airs, it probably will already be out. And, uh, well, I'll just give you the the title. I've got a bunch of stuff on my uh, busy desktop, but let me just get the title for you. The title is FBI Responsibility for U.S. Terror Plots. In 2013, it was Project Censored fourth fourth top story, fourth top story. Uh, Russia Today reported it. Uh, Mother Jones reported on the same issue, and literally the FBI uh, uh, entraps innocent people to do, to uh, allegedly do things they never would have imagined. And entrapment literally means that to convince people to get involved in stuff that never entered their minds and uh, uh, somehow they were provoked to get into a situation where it at least looked like they were uh, involved in uh, planning and intending to carry out uh, a a terrorist attack of some kind. Uh, Authorities, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder and uh, uh, FBI officials, they claim they don't do this. Uh, They admit publicly that they, uh, they use stings. Well, sting, uh, maybe, uh, maybe they call them stings, but I think, and sometimes they may in fact be stings, and there's nothing illegal about a sting. A sting doesn't, doesn't literally, uh, provoke somebody to do something. Uh, there, I guess a sting is a way of monitoring activities that are going on, and then they catch people who actually do something, who actually plan to do something and try to pull it off. But entrapment means that they, they, they literally, they, they almost coerce somebody to do something Thing they never imagined, and that is blatantly illegal if it could be proved. The trouble is, it's almost impossible to, to prove it in the kind of court system that America has now. Hmm. And I, 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 it sounds to me like uh, we had a case here in, in Canada. I mean, well, of course, there's the recent one, but there was also a, a predecessor incident in 2006, I think it was, where uh, you had 18 men who were uh, implicated in an al-Qaeda cell, and, and there was evidence there that the, uh, the RCMP had uh, uh, been involved in entrapping them as well. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that you talk about, uh, you know, the, the FBI's involvement in, in, in trapping these people and then coming along after the fact and, and saying, look, we've caught these people. Um, and, and, and that whole, I, I guess, narrative just serves to, uh, to, to what, Re- reinforce a certain narrative of the importance of security? Oh, it sure does. Uh, fear-mongering and, and enlisting the support of the U.S. public. You, you, need, you need, need to make them fear 
so-called terror threats, because America, of course, as we know, Michael, is waging a multiple imperial wars, either direct or indirect ones, uh, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, other places. And, and, and people need to be made, made fearful of supposed threats and then the authorities say that they're, they're protecting the security of Americans. Uh, if they didn't do this, then the, uh, terrorists could be running free on American streets. Well, it's amazing they can get people to believe most anything if they keep repeating it long enough, and, and the major media keep repeating it over and over again. So people are fearful. You can, uh, if you repeat the big lie often enough, Michael, most people are going to believe it, and that's exactly the way it works. Uh, the situation in Canada that happened just recently, the supposed that the train incident, I wrote about it. I put it in an article I titled America's War on Terrorism 2.0, and uh, and uh, the two the two individuals targeted in this they absolutely categorically uh, uh, deny any involvement in this and I and I and I absolutely believe them I think this is another case of entrapment of some kind and uh, innocent people are being are being charged uh, serious charges against against these two they're going to have a very hard time getting out from under them they'll probably end up being convicted and put in prison even though I honestly believe they did nothing. Mm. Uh, what would be your basis for for saying that uh, that your your belief in their innocence? I don't think there's any hard evidence against them. It's very easy to contrive evidence. And again, I've written about this in so many articles on U.S. victims. And uh, there's one that comes to my mind in Canada. I forget his name offhand, but at least one in Canada I wrote about. And, uh, and 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 there was no. I, I was alerted to him uh, by his father, who sent me information on his case, and he absolutely was was entrapped in a, in a scheme. He had no involvement whatsoever, and this poor young guy uh, literally may end up spending the rest of his life in prison, and he's absolutely innocent. But when you look at that, at what the, what the authorities come up with with evidence. Uh, it's it's full of holes. There really is nothing there, and this is what I found, Michael, in, in the in the in the individuals that I wrote about. Uh, all kinds of stuff is used. Secret evidence is used that isn't made available to uh, defense attorneys. How can a, how can a defense attorney uh, defend the client if the government is claiming secret evidence? They put up witnesses that sometimes are, uh, are anonymous. They they appear in court behind a screen. Uh, uh, the uh, you've got hanging judges literally that don't give the defense attorneys a proper way to uh, to uh, uh, ask questions of, of certain individuals, especially the ones that the government is, is putting up, the, the anonymous ones or whatever. And so a fundamental principle of, of, of uh, jurisprudence is that the, uh, the, the accused should have the right to confront their accusers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I think that's true in all Western societies. Uh, it, a, a little bit of variance from one country to another. But uh, it's certainly true in America, and I believe it's true in, in Canada. Again, I mean, how can you put up a property defense if you, if, if you don't know exactly what the charges are, exactly what the evidence is, and able, able to, to uh, countermand, not countermand, but, but to ask questions responsibly of uh, prosec- uh, prosecution's uh, witnesses and, and literally grill them? To find out exactly whether they whether what they're saying has any credibility, but such constraints are put in the face of uh, defense attorneys that when the prosecutors want to convict, 
you're almost always going to get their, their, their person, usually a man, once in a blue moon, a woman. Hmm. Now, as you write in your, like, speaking about this erosion of, uh, of rights, um, you, you write in the, in the wake of the Boston bombings, America's War on Islam 2.0, that uh, the, uh, as you say, the, the two brothers were set up as patsies, and then the, the surviving brother was not read his Miranda rights. And uh, the, the outcry against this doesn't seem to be that strong in you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Um, ha- have, are, are we witnessing that, that kind of uh, uh, a tolerance? Are, are, are Canadian, or Americans, well, Americans and Canadians, I guess, somehow more tolerant of these uh, abuses of our liberties than uh, maybe even from the time around 9-11? They only get one side of the story, Michael. They, they, they don't. They don't hear the other side. When you get published reports in the New York Times, there'll be, there'll be a little bit of the other side of the story, but it's usually buried into an article. When people read a New York Times article, I, I, or they can either read it online, uh, or they can read it. Uh, well, they can read it online in the Times and in the Washington Post, other publications, or, or they can buy the newspaper if they live in the city. But most people will read the first paragraph or two or three. They don't. They don't. They don't go through the entire article. So the very provocative stuff is in the headline and in the first two or three paragraphs, and and that's basically the story that people get. But most people, I guess, in Canada and America and other other Western countries, they get their news from television, and television is, is very very one sided. I think the CBC is 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 nothing to be proud of. Certainly, U.S. television is is just atrocious. It doesn't matter whether it's CNN or. Fox, they're basically all the same. They tell, they tell the party line story, the official story, and they keep repeating it over and over again, and people believe this stuff. The only way to know the truth is to find credible sources. You probably have to do it online like global research. Too few people do it. So global research can get so many thousands, whatever the number is, of readers every day, but U.S. television and Canadian television gets millions. That's a, a major difference. Hmm. Now, the uh, uh, I mean, it's been you know suggested that uh, that this has been uh, uh, a false flag, uh, you know, like you know the same accusation has been made about nine eleven, meaning that this is something that was being uh, government like actually orchestrated this. Um, but whether or not that's the case, uh, you, you do seem to see a, an application of what Naomi Klein calls the shock doctrine. And so in the wake of the Boston bombing, for example, they, they had police going door to door and, and telling people not to leave, not to answer the door unless it's a, a police officer with an ID to go after one guy. Um, so, so what does that tell you, especially given that you yourself came from Boston? What, what does that tell you about the state of affairs uh, in, in terms of uh, this uh, trajectory toward police state? Oh, it's what too few people understand, Michael. I, I mean, what happened in Boston for, for that period of lockdown, this was martial law. 
This was martial law. If it could happen in Boston, it could happen in Chicago, it could happen anywhere. It will happen. There will be more of these incidents. Uh, who knows when or what they'll be or whatever, but they can happen anywhere, and a precedent has been set. I mean, literally, Boston declared martial law. Uh, who gives who gives Boston authorities or the FBI or anybody to simply uh, go around the Constitution and, and declare martial law uh, using other language, lockdown, you know, we're protecting you, uh, stay out of harm's way. This was martial law. This was suspending the Constitution. It only happened for a short time, but a short time can lead to a longer time to, to uh, possible permanency. And that is the real danger. If there's a much greater event, something on the order of 9-11 or something more serious than 9-11, uh, literally the chance exists that martial law could be declared and the Constitution suspended. And people will be convinced that it's being done for their own good. That's the worst thing of all. Hmm. Well, you've, uh, you've seen not only this, uh, you know, that, that institution of martial law, but... The uh, also legislation that, that's been coming down. Uh, there's this uh, CISPA, for example. Uh, basically, they're, they're talking about uh, more uh, surveillance on the internet and, and more security uh, in order to keep people safe. Uh, is, is there anything uh, that, that that comes to mind uh, that is particularly pernicious in its application that uh, is being um, facilitated by the the scare around Boston? Well, post 9-11, Michael, we saw a raft of police state laws pass one after another. Uh, the Patriot Act was being held up and, and, until those 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 those, uh, <laughs> those uh, very scary, uh, you would say, uh, anthrax letters that targeted uh, uh, um, uh, two U.S. senators, uh, 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 Leahy of Vermont uh, and 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 the uh, Republican uh, majority leader, uh, they were targeted with anthrax letters. Uh, people died from from uh, receiving exposure to anthrax. Well, the Patriot Act sailed through about uh, so many weeks, uh, four or five weeks after uh, the 9/11 attacks. Uh, the Afghan War happened uh, a month after the 9/11 attacks, but the police state laws kept coming. And even occasionally, when the Supreme Court acted responsibly, which is not very often, the Congress simply went around the Supreme Court by enacting a new law. So you've got all these laws on the books. Now we see the House of Representatives, by more than a two-thirds uh, majority, passed the CISPA. They passed, the, they passed the, an earlier version of CISPA last year, I believe. The Senate rejected it. Uh, the, the CISPA will be debated in the Senate. It could pass in the Senate. I mean, the pressure is on. Uh, we, had, we had ricin letters, uh, anthrax letters after 9-11. We had ricin letters this time. That seems to have faded from the news. They're just, they're just keeping the, the bombings in the headlines. But they could come up with other stunts to get people uh, very, very fearful. And it could be that CISPA will, will pass. CISPA just gives corporations a right to, to look at anything we do and pass information on to the government. But what most people don't understand, this basically is going on right now. There are, there's all kinds of spying on U.S. individuals. This has been persistent since 9-11. It's coming from various agencies of the government including the Pentagon, including the FBI. Uh, I imagine the CIA is involved. So how much more CISPA will add to this, I'm not sure, because there is so much already. They literally, The government can literally access anything about us they want to know, and I truly believe they're doing it, and I'm sure they've accessed me and know as much about me as I do. <laughs> now, um, 
I, I just uh, also wanted to, uh, to, to to briefly get into the whole issue of uh, the, the the Canadian attacks. Uh, you know, something that we didn't quite uh, get to yet is the uh, the convenient timing that uh, you know, depending on your perspective. But the, it came right after the Boston bombing. This announcement came right after the Boston bombings, and and right before the uh, decision to uh, support anti-terrorism legislation in Ottawa. Uh, which passed, which uh, basically invoked some of previous legislation that had sunsetted uh, a few years after 9/11, be calling for preemptive arrests and, or preventative arrests, and uh, basically uh, something called investigative uh, hearings, which uh, if you don't comply with, you could spend 12 months in jail. You know, really uh, draconian stuff. Uh, is it really? I don't know, too, uh, quote-unquote, conspiratorial to reflect on that uh, timing? Well, you can call it conspiratorial or you can call it pressure, Michael. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly what happened with the Patriot Act after 9-11. And I included uh, the uh, Combat Terror your Combat Terrorism Act, uh, Bill uh, S-7. That, uh, it, it, did, it, did pass, uh, it did pass in the legislature. It did, yes. In Parliament. Yeah. Uh, at least some of the provisions uh, 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 in it were investigative hearings may convene. Individuals alleged to have information on suspected terrorist attacks have no right to remain silent. Uh, uncharged terrorist suspects uh, lose free, uh, free uh, movement rights. And again, uh, the legislators were uh, pressured to act tough, and they did. But, uh, but absent this alleged uh, terror plot, maybe they would not have passed this law. So that's what this dirty game is all about. And, and, and there could be more and more. Any 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 time the authorities that want that they want to take the, a hotline uh, 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 approach uh, on uh, what's going on, uh, they can stage a terror plot. Uh, they can pressure the uh, parliamentarians to to go along with it, and uh, and they're scared because uh, if if people are convinced there really is is a great danger, and Parliament doesn't act to protect them, then uh, the ones who voted against the legislation can can be voted out of office, and somebody replacing them in the next election. So uh, to uh, save their own jobs, they go along with stuff, even though they know it's not the right thing to do. Hmm. Well, um, maybe we should move on to uh, another topic that I, I know that's been uh, pretty close uh, uh, close to mind for you, and, and you wrote out recently, and, and that is the whole issue of uh, a potential war against Syria. Uh, there was an announcement earlier this week uh, from uh, that the Israel had announced that uh, there was uh, what they called uh, an assessment that, uh, of uh, the Syrian government's use of chemical weapons, and as we both know, it's uh, that uh, that that's what the uh, Obama administration called the game changer in facilitating a, a military intervention on the part of an overt military intervention on the part of uh, the United States. So uh, what are your thoughts about uh, this uh, announcement, uh, both uh, in terms of timing and uh, in, in the context of, of these other uh, wider issues? Well, the great fear I have, Michael, is that uh, America has been very... Uh, Syria is, Amer is America's war. There is absolutely no question about that. It was planned years ago, years ago. Uh, I, think, I think Obama is looking for an excuse to literally uh, take the mask off and get fully involved, just, just, just 
to have a repeat of the Libya situation. So Syria could turn out to be Libya 2.0, which would involve NATO. And there could be all kinds of ways uh, to to get a NATO intervention, a uh, Washington-led NATO intervention. And uh, you, you need a pretext, but they're so easy to manufacture. I don't think for a minute that the Syrian authorities uh, used chemical weapons. In the article that I put out, uh, uh, Michelle posted it. Uh, the title I used was Target Syria Allegations of Chemical Weapons Use. I don't have Global's research title right in front of me. But I quoted a Syrian official, uh, 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 Deputy Foreign Minister, and he basically said what others have said a number of times. Here's his direct quote. He made this, uh, oh, some weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. He said, Syria stresses again for the tenth, for the hundredth time, that if we had such weapons, they do have such weapons, if we had such weapons, they would not be used against our people. We would not commit suicide, unquote. Well, I absolutely believe it. What on earth gain would Syria have by using chemical weapons when Obama and others have laid down the gauntlet and have said, you use chemical weapons, we're going to bring down the hammer on you. They absolutely would not use chemical weapons. Uh, I, uh, uh, the uh, insurgent forces, call them what you will. I like to call them death squads, insurgent forces. I, I hate the term rebel. I'll only use it when I'm quoting somebody who calls them rebels. They're not rebels. Uh, they're foreign invaders for the most part. You've got extremist groups like uh, uh, al-Nusra, uh, some al-Qaeda elements, some others. And, uh, I mean, these are literally foreign invaders from, from numerous countries in the region and beyond the region. And they're recruited. They're recruited by America, by Western countries, by Middle East countries, and they're shipped in, they cross borders from Turkey, maybe from Jordan, and they're infiltrating Syria and committing heinous war crimes, a mass murder and all kinds of other stuff. There was at least one attack where they were using a chlorine substance, some kind of a homemade bomb they used with chlorine in it. If I remember what a CL-17 was called. And... And, and it it, uh, it it harmed a number of people. Well, they were using this stuff. They made a video. I didn't include that in my article. I wrote about it earlier, in an earlier article. Well, they they made a video uh, claiming they they had uh, access to, to some types of chemical weapons and would use them. But it would be very easy for America or Turkey or anybody else to give uh, these uh, these insurgents uh, chemical agents and let them plant them in the dirt, and then somebody digs up samples of the dirt and says, "Aha." We told you so. Syria is using chemical weapons. If America wants to intervene and they've already picked a date to do it, it's very easy to create a pretext and they can use chemical weapons. They can say anything they want to say and this would be the reason for acting. Or they can say it's some kind of a mass terrorist uh, attack, maybe using chemical weapons, blame it on the Syrian government, and again, there's your pretext and you've got another full-scale war. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. So are we looking at another kind of Colin Powell-type situation where some representative of the Obama administration is going to appear in front of the UN and say, look, we've got... Uh, Here's they they used this uh, chemical weapon and they we intercepted all these phone calls and uh, and then make, make the case to the UN to to intervene or 
how, how do you see this playing out? Oh, it could very well play out uh, the same way. Uh, no aluminum tubes this time, or mobile biological laboratories, biological agent laboratories, whatever Colin Powell called them. But again, uh, it, it is so, you and I could come up with, with, with a dozen pretexts, Michael, without any trouble at all. And uh, when you only get one side of the story, which is what comes over the news, repeated over and over again, then people actually believe this stuff. So if America wants to go to war with Syria overtly, as opposed to covertly, the way it's happening now, people can and actually be convinced that Syria threatens America and they'll go along with, with the, this war. Uh, just the way, uh, I, don't, I forget what the polls said ahead of the Iraq war, because uh, people were, were very unnerved after 9-11. So it, it, it was a piece of cake to sell the Afghanistan war, even though the Taliban or nobody in Afghanistan had anything whatsoever to do with 9-11. But the, but the, but the fear was absolutely uh, very intense. So it was, it was easy for Washington to get away with murder. And then and again, in the run-up to the Iraq war, people were, were led to believe things that absolutely were false, and they only got one side of the story. Hmm. So when, when you talk about the uh, these uh, foreign-based insurgents, the, the, the so-called rebels in Syria, it, it sounds like you could be talking about the Contras in uh, El Salvador or the, uh, the, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Is, is that a, a more or less accurate uh, analogy? Oh yeah, it's, it's the uh, Mujahideen back in the 19. It's been so long. I forget the way the media portrayed that, except, except in very general terms, Michael. Where again, you go one side of the story: the good guys, the freedom fighters, and uh, Ronald Reagan invited them. There's a famous picture of, of some of them uh, in, I guess it was in the Oval Office, but in the White House with Ronald Reagan, and uh, uh, he called them uh, the uh, the moral equivalent of America's founding fathers. <laughs> <laughs> And today they're terrorists. It's easy. It's easy. It's Sounds easy like a low opinion of the founding fathers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I don't have a very high opinion of the founding fathers, but I, w I wouldn't call them terrorists. I call them a lot of bad things. I wouldn't call them uh, terrorists the way we, we, we throw that word around today. But uh, but that, but they certainly weren't the, the, the saintly, uh, admirable people they're made out to be. And, and uh, maybe the best of the lot, who was not a founding father, Thomas Jefferson wasn't even there. He was ambassador to France at the time. And Benjamin Franklin, he was there, but he was an old man. I think he might have been in his 80s. So he he was only there, but he didn't take part in anything. He might have been a good guy if he'd been a leader of the thing. Uh, but that's another story entirely. <laughs> but, uh, but but uh, again, it's easy to, to morph uh, uh, freedom fighters into terrorists because uh, people uh, the, the early story goes down the memory hole, and people only get the latest story. Hmm. Now, anyway... Uh this time, however, it, it looks like we're looking at a multinational uh, interest. I mean, England, uh, Israel, of course, uh, France uh, all seem to be on board with this project, and, and the, the main dissenting bodies would be Russia and uh, China, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah so we're, we're looking at a, a major geopolitical uh, shakeup should that uh, event happen. Uh, what... Uh, what, what would you say is the game plan? What is the uh, what is the trajectory of this uh, of these mobilizations? What, what could we be looking forward to? Uh, are we talking about maybe a war this year followed by another war? Where, where do you see this going? Well, I get asked. Uh 
a fair number of times. If uh, if America overtly goes to war with Syria and or Iran, what would Russia and China do? And I must say, Michael, I scratch my head over this. Both countries have major interests. They know that they are America's final frontier in the sense that they represent uh, the two major countries, militarily and economically, that can challenge America. And if America eliminates all the independent countries, Syria, Iran, Venezuela, uh, others that may be on their target list, the only two remaining are Russia and China. And they both have interests uh, in the Middle East and other parts of the world that they just want to sit by and let America literally take over one part of the world and another and another. And finally, it comes down to them. It's hard imagining that America would want a war with either one of them, but, uh, but they will certainly challenge them economically and other ways to reduce their importance, to dominate uh, what uh, both of these countries feel uh, are their sovereign rights. So what will they do? Will they draw their own red line? Will they decide they simply won't take this anymore? And will they let Washington know that if you do A, B, or C, then we will do D, E, and F? And maybe that would scare Washington to back off a little bit. Uh, I mean, that's very tough stuff to do. I don't think uh, Russia or China want to get into a war with America. I mean, I can't imagine that they will want to do it. At the same time, they don't want to lose what's important to them strategically in the Middle East, in Eurasia, in other parts of the world. And for certain, they're both extremely upset and concerned about uh, Obama's uh, Asia pivot and surrounding Russia with U.S. bases and putting in so-called missile defense that's for offense, not defense. So at some point, they've got, they've got to do something besides just lodging complaints. I would hope, and I'm certain they, they absolutely would want to do something short of an open conflict, but I don't think they can stand by and do nothing. But mistakes can be made. Literally, one thing can lead to another, and all of a sudden you've got a war. And uh, uh, that would literally uh, possibly turn what could be what could be a regional war in the Middle East could end up being a global war. And there's a name for that, Michael, and it's it's, it's called World War Three. That is a very dangerous scenario. Uh, you and I uh, might never have a chance to go on air again if that happens. Uh, I'm working on another article uh, where I quoted uh, uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover, the father of America's nuclear navy. And he testified to Congress. He died, uh, I think, around 1980 or so on. So that was many years ago. But he testified to, co uh, to Congress at one point, and he basically said, among the things that he said, he was absolutely he he he, he wanted nuclear power ended, uh, commercial and uh, and uh, military. And, and he said, in the, in the next major conflict, uh, absolutely, just like in past conflicts, nations involved will use every weapon they have. That's what's always happened in previous wars. So he was basically saying, if there's another major war, nuclear weapons will be used. And in another part of his testimony, he explained that, that for billions of years, planet Earth was uninhabitable. There was too much radiation. It took billions of years to get rid of this stuff. And if there's another war, nuclear weapons will be used. The planet will become uninhabitable again. So that ends everything. And he was very concerned about it. We see, we see how serious Congress took him. Michael, and nothing has been done. Yeah. But I absolutely agree with him. I think if there is another major conflict, it'll end up being a nuclear one. Heaven help us. Now, on, on that uh, subject, that might be a, a good segue for the, the next topic I wanted to bring up with you, uh, North Korea and uh, the uh, 
Uh, well, the, a lot of the passionate rhetoric from uh, Kim Jong Kim Jong Un. Um, the, the, it's not exactly coming out of nowhere. <clears throat> it's not exactly coming out of nowhere, as you note. There's been the Asia pivot, as well as uh, these uh, military drills uh, in between the United States and South Korea. Uh, do you want to uh, maybe talk about your uh, your take on the the issue of North Korea and uh, where that fits in with uh, the, a possible trigger of uh, what you're calling uh, World War Three? Well, on the one hand, North Korea is certainly not a model society. I would not want to live in North Korea, even if there wasn't a war threat. But North Korea has been a victim. It certainly isn't a, per a perpetrator. It wasn't responsible for the Korean War. That was Harry Truman's war. And it's been victimized ever since. You know, you, you, you still got, you, you got, you've got an uneasy armistice that really is, is basically a state of war. And North Korea, at least, at least for several decades or longer, has wanted to normalize relations with Washington and the West. If a them with Washington, there'd be no problem getting them with the rest of uh, other Western countries. But Washington absolutely stonewalls them, uh, wants no part of it. Washington needs enemies. So, so North Korea comes right out of central casting, uh, just like Saddam did. And, and you, I guess you, 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 can, you can manufacture a central casting threat very easily by the way uh, the, the false uh, things are said about them. But uh, Washington needs uh, North Korea as an enemy. I don't think, I don't think they want a war with North Korea. Uh, I imagine North Korea really does have nuclear weapons, and, and if they really think that their, their entire future is threatened, uh, they, could, they could use them. You've got U.S. troops in South Korea. South Korea is very vulnerable. My goodness, I mean, North Korean artillery, I think Seoul is close, close enough to the North Korean uh, border that before America destroyed it all, uh, it, could, it could do quite uh, a destructive job on the city of Seoul. And if North Korea used nuclear weapons because they felt they had no choice, North Korea would be destroyed, but so would South Korea. And heaven help us, could that be a nuclear war? Could that be the trigger for World War III? You, you, you just don't know. But uh, North Korea absolutely does not want a war. North Korea wants peace. As far as the belligerent, saber-rattling uh, rhetoric by Kim Jong-un, I think it's just, it's just rhetoric. I pay no attention to rhetoric, no matter uh, whom it comes from, Michael. I look for policy. What are countries doing? What do I see them doing? They say all kinds of things. It's what they do that matters most. So I, uh, uh, North Korea is uh, uh, rattling its own saber, and uh, I think you can take it with a grain of salt, because I absolutely believe North Korea wants no part of a war. Mm. What would if they wanted a war between between uh, 1953, uh, July or so, whenever the, whenever the armistice was declared, from that point to today, has North Korea attacked anybody? No. <laughs> I can't imagine North Korea attacking anybody now. I want to bring up the, uh, the subject of Venezuela, which which happens to to have the the largest oil reserves in the world. But before we leave North Korea, uh, North Korea doesn't have oil, so what would be the geostrategic uh, situation there that uh, would be rectified by uh, any kind of conflict? You mean who supply North Korea with oil? No, I mean uh, in terms of uh, like what? Why uh, is uh, North Korea? Uh, feeling themselves provoked into this situation uh, where they, they they feel they need to, I mean they've got the the, the uh, I mean they're the is it the concerns around like what what is the significance of North Korea to the international community beyond beyond the fact that they have uh, nuclear weapons 
Is it like what you were saying earlier, like Russia and China, they have the ability to defend themselves in a sense? I honestly think that the only real enemy of significance that North Korea has uh, is America. And if America backed off and acted normally, normalized relations with North Korea, I think that would open up the rest of the Western world, uh, uh, NATO countries especially, uh, uh, and, and major European ones, uh, Britain, France, Germany, and so on. Uh, they basically uh, uh, are pressured to go along with Washington, whether they want to or not. So you could take the Iranian sanctions uh, situation, uh, uh, not uh, importing Iranian oil. Uh, these countries want Iranian oil, but they'll go along with what Washington wants because the pressure gets put on them. So if Washington wants to use North Korea as an enemy and a threat, then these countries will go along with that. So it isolates North Korea. You see sanctions put on the country. It's, a, it's, a, it's an awful situation because we could have peace so easily. We could have it today, Michael, if we had responsible people in Washington. Washington, and they just decided that we've had enough of this belligerence and wars and so on. I mean, let's end all this. I mean, this won't happen, but in my dreams, I could just imagine that we would have uh, uh, top officials in Washington that just decided what's been going on for so many decades has just gotten us nowhere. Uh, we, we end up making more enemies than friends, and we're going to decide to do something uh, different in the future and really do it. Uh, a whole new world would open up. And uh, I mean, just imagine uh, a policy of peace instead of a policy of war. But America literally has a permanent war policy, and for that you need enemies. And when you don't have them, you create them, and North Korea is perfect. So it's been a permanent enemy since uh, June 1950. Hmm. Now, uh, you've written uh, recently a couple of pieces on Venezuela as well and uh, these uh, closely contested elections. I just uh, wanted to point out, first of all, that uh, it seems like the international reaction to the death of Hugo Chavez was quite different from the international reaction to the death of Margaret Thatcher. Um, just a sort of interesting little uh, anecdote there, but uh, maybe not surprising in the, the broader uh, context. Um, but you, you do feel that there's been a, a significant media smear of the, uh, the current uh, newly elected president, Nicolas Maduro, and uh, I, I guess I'm just um, wondering how you see things playing out there in terms of uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe make the case for, uh, you know, the United States is definitely trying to push for some kind of a, uh, a, a recount or an audit. Um, how is that, uh, how responsible is that uh, in, in terms of what actually happened in, in Venezuela? Oh, the election was absolutely real and, and legitimate, open, free, and fair. And I've uh, used Jimmy Carter's words a number of times, recalls uh, the Venezuelan electoral process the best in the world. It really is. I mean, it's marvelous. Uh, you compare it to America's. I mean, I, there are so many things about it. We don't, we don't want to go into detail about it, but it's right there in the Constitution. And all Venezuelans uh, at birth. Uh, are enfranchised. Imagine that. We're in America. So many people are stricken from the voting rolls for one reason or another. And there's no national law in, in America on voting. It's basically a state issue. Um, and this should be a national law, and everybody should be eligible to vote. Nobody should be excluded. But the process in Venezuela is extremely fair. It's very legitimate. The claim otherwise is, is absolutely a red herring. Uh, I got an email from somebody. It was in Spanish. And I, I trans- it was brief. I translated, and I don't have it in front of me. But uh, uh, Capriles, the opposition candidate, uh, his 
either his his chief advisor or one of his leading advisors admitted in so many words that Caprilis lost and Maduro won. The only thing that surprised me was it was so close, less than 2%. And I really expected Maduro to do at least as well as Chavez. I thought Venezuelans would be scared. Chavez won roughly by 55-45%. I think it was a little over 10%. But he a very comfortable margin. In America, we call that a landslide. It was a landslide. Uh, I thought Maduro might even do better than that. I really, I, I really blew that one. But I thought he would because I, I thought Venezuelans would be scared. We don't have Chavez anymore. We we have to let the the people we don't want back in power know that uh, that uh, we want this. We want Bolivarianism. We want the same things we're getting now. So I thought Venezuelans would turn out on mass. Most Venezuelans are just ordinary people, uh, either poor people or newly emerged from from poverty people. And these are people that uh, Chavez and Bolivarianism has done so much for. Uh, they absolutely don't want to lose these things. Uh, uh, free education, free health care, subsidized food, uh, uh, subsidized housing, so many things that if these other guys get in, the oligarch forces supported by Washington, they wouldn't change things straight away. They tried to uh, uh, after the aborted uh, April 2002 coup. Uh, they literally uh, just, just, just axed the entire system. But they wouldn't do that again. They'd be more clever this time. They'd, they'd do it very slowly over time. But if they stayed in presidential terms of six years, uh, you've still got the, the uh, parliament to deal with, the National Assembly. So, I mean, they could countermand the, the president. But if they got control of the National Assembly and, and president for an extended period of time, before the term ended, before the next elections, they would basically erode at least a good part of Bolivarianism, if not all of it. And I would think Venezuelans would be very, very fearful of that. Mm. Well, the the, uh, the Caprile is uh, the, the, he, he's uh, representative of uh, those certain those forces that are looking to uh, administer uh, on the behalf of, uh, I guess, the United States and the, the corporate sector. Is that kind of what you're arguing there? Uh, is there any uh, indications that the the opposition? Forces, the, the the protests that we've been seeing, that there's uh, involvement on the part of a wider uh, elements. Oh, I think those were staged. There were. I saw a figure at the last article I had. I think I said either seven or eight people were killed. I think it went up to nine. And I have a friend in Caracas, Michael. He sent me a lot of emails uh, telling me what he was either observing or what he learned uh, in in uh, information, whether it's on state television or publications. He's reading in Spanish, of course, and uh, sending me information. I included that in some of my articles. And uh, I mean, this was all stuff that was staged by the opposition. And, and uh, I absolutely believe that Washington's long um, had had a lot to do with this uh, uh, attacking uh, a Venezuelans electrical grid. I mean, k- killing people and, and staging uh, provocative events of various kinds. And this was uh, to, to 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 blame on the government, to blame the government for a lot of stuff that's going on. There there are serious problems in Venezuela that need to be addressed. But I think these people would try to take try to take it uh, to a higher level that that wouldn't exist if it weren't for these provocations. Uh, America absolutely absolutely wants to destabilize Venezuela. Here, you, again, you get an issue of a, an independent country with all that oil there, the most oil in the world, most of it's heavy oil, but, but the stuff that I think is, is, uh, is uh, 
either, either, either light, sweet, or much more easily refined. There's an awful lot of that in Venezuela, maybe a couple of hundred billion barrels. But uh, the uh, Department of Energy in America a few years ago said that, Amer- that Venezuela has 1.36 trillion barrels of oil. I, once wrote, I wrote an article with that in, in, in the title. I, I never got so many responses <laughs> from people, including people who know a lot, who knew a lot, a lot about oil, which I do not, and, and they thought I was nuts. And I said, well, I didn't say this. This is the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll have, never forget that. Yeah, people have to do their own research, and just uh, it's, it's right there if you're willing to put in the, the work to, to, to uncover it. Um, now, as you're mentioning this, uh, I'm reminded of the, the, the colored revolutions in the, uh, the former uh, Soviet Union, places like the, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, for example. And uh, I'd certainly read a lot of uh, – uh, th- there had been talk about how the CIA fostered these sorts of popul- quote-unquote populist movements to uh, overthrow uh, regimes that they don't particularly like. Uh, are we – is it your assessment then that this is part of that same pattern? Well, we we have not seen a real color revolution in Venezuela. It sure, it sure won't be a red revolution. Nah. <laughs> uh, Chavez is color, but we saw it in Ukraine. We saw it in Georgia. Uh, uh, they, they succeeded. They they tried a green revolution in Iran that failed. Uh, there's an election coming up in Iran in June. There'll probably be something a stage for that. We'll have to wait and see. Whatever whatever goes on, if it's certain, I'll write about it. Uh, some of them didn't uh, didn't make it, but absolutely a CIA elements involved. Uh, working internally with uh, with people in these countries, and uh, and they got the kind of governments uh, in, in, uh, installed that they wanted. I think there's a um, there's a term for this, and I, it may be a Rand Corporation term called swarming, where, where, they, where uh, they, they, they 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 literally create these events and these stage events. Some some of them I, I remember so well. And where I live in downtown Chicago, Michael, uh, there's a store that I used to go to. I haven't been there in a good while, but to get to this store, I passed the. Uh, uh, Ukraine consulate in Chicago, and when and when one of the elections was taking place, I, I think it might have been. Oh, it's been so long since I, I did write about this, but it's been so long. Uh, there, there was a series of events uh, ongoing with with this Orange Revolution, and I, I think there was a vote taking place while this was ongoing. It might have been a, a vote then another vote. Would, however, that sequence played out. But I remember seeing a long line in front of the uh, the uh, Ukraine consulate in Chicago. And I stopped to chat with a couple of people who I think were voting for the wrong people, for the people who were staging this color revolution. And I tried to explain to them what I said was going on, and they responded to me in a very hostile manner. So I just moved on yeah. and did my shopping. And I think I avoided, no, I think I actually did pass them on the way back, but the line moved into the consulate. So probably I didn't pass any of the same people on the way back, but I guess uh, expatriates uh, 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 in uh, Chicago and other cities very much were on the side of the color revolution, but uh, that was an event that uh, that made me remember that especially. Well, it seems as if uh, the uh, American people and the Canadian people, um, at least, have been very much manipulated by their media in terms of uh, you know being able to, you know, facilitating these sorts of actions by only giving them, as you say, like one side of the story on the front page and the early uh, paragraphs of uh, any any story. Um, What then would you 
suggest that uh, that the, the media or, or at least consumers of media, w what questions should they be asking when they look at these uh, events that seem to be unfolding uh, with increasing rapidity? Oh, that's easy. Turn off your television set. <laughs> Go online to uh, websites like Global Research. Uh, there are good programs. Uh, your program is, is excellent, Michael. I hope mine is, too, on the Progressive, Ra Progressive Ra uh, Radio News Hour. I mean, these, these, these are credible sources with, with good guests who really try very hard to, to present accurately what, in fact, is going on. But if you turn on your television set or read your morning newspaper, you're going you're to get biased reports, all one-sided. You simply won't have any idea what's going on. On, and you're going to be barraged with that over and over and over again. It takes a little bit of effort to, to, to go online and do this. But I tell people, I've said it on my own program, if you just spend 15 minutes a day going to credible websites or while, while you're eating a meal, uh, tune into a credible radio or television broadcast, you can get this stuff so easily online. And so many people are connected. There's no excuse for not doing this. You can find out what's going on. And most important is to understand that these things touch our lives directly. Our government, government policies are literally harming us. If you let them get away with it, they'll do more and more and more. It'll get worse, increasingly worse, and you're going to see your liberties eroded. You're going to see, you're going to see everything that you cherish just go right down the drain. The only way to counter this is, number one, get informed. Number two, get involved. Spread the word to others. Tell them. Explain to them what's going on. Make them understand that, 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 that their welfare is being harmed. Their children are being harmed. If they're old enough, their grandchildren are being harmed. Is this what you want to see in your future? It's not that America is, today is not the country I grew up in, Michael. I, I would not want to be young today. I would not want to be growing up in America today. Uh, what would I have to look forward to? Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough uh, to get into good schools when they were affordable. I could never go there today now. I, I got out of school in a very soft economy. I had no trouble getting a good job. I ended ended up in, in private family business, but I could have stayed uh, working for, for other companies doing what I was doing. It was very easy. Uh, there really was something ahead of me to look forward to, but for most people today, that doesn't exist. And then you've got all these endless wars that never stop, and, and, you've, got to re and, and you've got the police state laws at home. People need to realize that really the hammer is coming down on us, and, and unless we do something to change this, we will end up with, with, with the worst of all possible worlds. You'll end up with no rights whatsoever, uh, and this is what your children will have to look forward to. I don't think anybody of the kind of people I would uh, address would want to live in a nation like that, but they need to understand that it's up to us to see that it doesn't happen. And if the power of, of ordinary people expresses itself enough and repeatedly, then the people in government will know they're not going to get away with it. Well, Stephen Lenmond, I want to really thank you for joining me for the, the past uh, hour and uh, discussing these thoughts uh, with our listeners. Uh, thank you very much. Michael, thank you. Stephen Lenman is the uh, author of Banking Oc Banker Occupation, Waging Financial War on Humanity. He's the host of the Progressive Radio News Hour on the Progressive Radio Network and a frequent contributor to the globalresearch.ca website. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.